0: To learn more about CODE, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E-Health.com, or email CODE directly at Partnerships at CodeHealth.com. The Intersection of Quality and Finance, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today we're featuring a special conversation with Rick Gundling, HFMA's Senior Vice President of Professional Practice, and Stephanie Mercado, the CEO and Executive Director of the National Association for Healthcare Quality, or NACU. They're discussing a recent NACU report, as well as how quality and finance teams can be more proactive. We'll be back with that interview in a moment, but first let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. Nick Hutt is out this week, so I am filling in and I'm joined by HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hi, Sean.
1: Hi, Erica. How are you?
0: I don't know. I didn't know you were going to ask me a question. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump right in. CMS has proposed new hospital federal price transparency requirements in their outpatient prospective payment system for the 2024 calendar year. It was released on July 13th of this year. Sean, I know you're currently occupied with finalizing HFMA's comments on the impending rule, specifically honing in on the hospital price transparency language. Can you give us some insights from your analysis on this language and elaborate on the ramifications?
1: Sure, Erica. So essentially, the proposed rule and the proposed provisions have two effective dates. The foundational elements in the proposed transparency rule, along with the accessibility elements, are proposed to go into effect January 1st, 2024. And then the larger lift items with the proposed rule requiring hospitals to follow a set of standardized schema in their hospital machine-readable file templates CMS is proposed to allow hospitals an additional three months. So those will go into effect in the proposed rule um, March 1st of 2024. However, HFMA and and a lot of our colleagues will be pushing back to CMS, asking them to please push that requirement for the machine-readable file up to January 1st of 2025. Many of the hospitals have already just renewed and refreshed There are transparency files that are due to be refreshed once a year. So the duplicative administrative burden and cost would be pretty profound for a lot of hospitals. Now, I don't know, I would caution folks to not get their hopes up too much. I know there's been a lot of price transparency legislation in DC that's found a lot of support by legislators in the last several months, HR 4822, 4507, and some others. So there's a lot of pressure on legislators and CMS to really push for some pretty diligent health price transparency requirements on hospitals and hopefully insurers in the future. So I think realistically, we might be able to get the deadline for the machine-readable file standard schema pushed out maybe to July 1st of 2024, but we're going to ask for 2025 just so hospitals have a little bit more time to prepare.
0: You mentioned several dates here, but it seems like there are a couple of distinct sets of effective dates. So let's let's clarify those for a minute. Can you talk about which requirements align with each of the effective dates? Yeah.
1: So for the later date, the proposed March 1st effective date, you're looking at CMS enforcing the new machine-readable file standard formats. Big changes there for hospitals are things like hospital location now needs to be on that machine-readable files. Uh, and so, so there's verification that each individual hospital in a health system has their own machine-readable file. Hospital licensure information needs to be updated. Things like payer-specific negotiated charge percentages now need to be out there and accurate. Percentages need to be dropped into the templates. Um, there's a lot of information out there on not just payer name, but also specific plan name rates that are out there, the contracting method those plans use. These are pretty high lifts for hospitals to get on their machine readable files. So that's gonna take a lot of validation and a lot of pulling of data in to get that information out there, you know, effectively and and make sure it's accurate. Along with those machine-readable files, there's going to be some accessibility requirements that hospitals have to meet where in the footer of the main hospital page, there needs to be a link directly to the hospital price transparency files with a specific, very specific naming convention. So accessibility is addressed in the rule, as well as, and probably more importantly, a great deal of information out there. On hospital leadership, who the main contacts in the hospital or the healthcare organization that is responsible for now certifying that these files are correct. So, a lot of teeth go out there in enforcement of these provisions now. So, that's being stood up.
0: So, you mentioned earlier the March 1st, 2024 date for the new standard machine readable file schema. How substantial a task do you think this is going to be? Is it going to be a really comprehensive process or are we talking about a couple new fields?
1: I mean, we're talking about several new fields and definitely a lot more detail that needs to be added to the machine-readable file, Erica. So I think there's going to be some pretty significant lift here based on the size of your hospital and and the services and items provided. I would say Take what you initially invested in administrative burden in formulating your standard formats and plan on using about 50% of that time to stand up these new ones. So it is going to be a pretty significant lift for hospitals to make sure that this new data in this new machine-readable file schema is validated and accurate.
0: As we often say on this podcast, the date might get pushed back, right? But start now just in case. Is that fair?
1: I would definitely start right now, just in case. I mean, we're going to ask for more time. But again, there is a lot of eyes, a lot of bipartisan eyes and push to implement more strategic and more detailed transparency requirements on providers. So I do think that this will move move forward a little bit aggressively in 2024, hopefully beginning of 2025. So I would prepare for the worst if I were a hospital.
0: A lot more to come on this, it sounds like. I know you and Nick are both going to be watching it closely. Listeners who want to learn more can see further developments at hfma.org slash news. Sean, thanks so much for uh, putting up with me today.
1: Thanks, Erica. It was great working with you.
0: We'll be back in a moment.
1: This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars.
0: Anyone working in a healthcare organization should consider safety and quality as part of their responsibilities. But the Healthcare Quality and Safety Workforce Report by the National Association for Healthcare Quality, or NAQ, found that patient safety is still a siloed effort. Recently, I sat down with Stephanie Mercado, CEO and Executive Director of NACU, and Rick Gundling, Senior Vice President of Professional Practice of HFMA, to discuss how quality and finance teams can shift their perspective to be more proactive. Stephanie, NACU's Healthcare Quality and Safety Workforce report found that patient safety is still a siloed effort, although ideally, everyone working in a healthcare organization should consider safety and quality as part of their responsibilities. You talk about quality as compliance being a reactive approach. What do you mean by that?
2: So when we think about the potential of quality and safety to have a real impact, what we need to understand is that we have to move past a compliance mindset and really evolve to an excellence mindset. When the uh, quality and safety movements were born, they were really born of a reactive approach to mitigate against things that we know go wrong. And in that regard, we find ourselves very much going through processes and procedures to make sure that we are able to jump through hoops, check boxes, and pass tests When really, what we should be doing is making sure, sure, we have those bases covered, but really aspiring towards the next level efforts in quality and safety that are really about being proactive and having a holistic and systematic way to ensure the highest quality, safest, and lowest cost healthcare overall.
0: How do you think that quality and finance teams can shift their perspective to be more proactive? And, and also finance professionals, how can they shift and and how have their attitudes shifted over the years?
3: I can jump in on that one. I think finance has come a long way since the days when quality wasn't recognized as an integral part of financial management. I think certainly in the last, since the Affordable Care Act was passed, gosh, that's been 14 years ago, and we're value-based payment. We're linking quality and finance and cost together Certainly, on the national stage, I think caused a national conversation about that. You know, and there are real concrete financial benefits to improving quality and safety. You know, and improve bond ratings. I think of any finance leader who's been talking with Fitch and Moody's and Standard and Poor's that one of the standard questions they ask management: What are you doing about quality? It's a very important component to uh, a credit rating. You know, also lowers interest costs, receiving quality incentive payments with the value-based payment models and avoiding penalties. And there's also intangible benefits such as improving the organization's reputation and building uh, patient trust and loyalty. If you look across the country, what do most health systems compete on? Quality. That's what they put forward in front of the community, in front of their physicians, in front of their patients. They all want to be number one in quality, right? You know, the the relationship between finance and quality goes even deeper. I think delivering improved value to the care purchasers is is really a fundamental goal for the health systems. That means continually striving for quality. And if you look at the care purchasers, employers, government programs, the patients themselves, it really means improving health on an individual and community level, because sustainable health is really the newest frontier for health systems. And quality and safety is just the linchpin for that.
0: Stephanie, in a commentary that you co-authored with HFMA in April, and we will include a link in the show notes for anyone who hasn't seen it, you wrote about consolidation. And in, in this environment of continuing consolidation among hospitals and health systems, what can health systems do to develop a better understanding of their investments across sites? What are some of the pitfalls that occur here?
2: This is a challenging situation because, for example, when you take um, a health system who has merged to have a combined, let's say, 18 hospitals, what you're going to find is 18 quality committees, 18 different quality staffing structures, very likely 150 different job descriptions. And it's a lot to sort out and situate. And then to sort of recalibrate and understand what is going to be your total investment in quality and safety across your entire enterprise. So, about a year ago, NACU launched a benchmarking resource. And the goal there was to help healthcare executives understand their total investment in quality and safety across the enterprise. And to be able to benchmark that against peers. So, I had thought the most interesting part of the benchmarking tool would be that peer to peer comparison. But in fact, what we have heard from the organizations who have participated so far is that they didn't understand their own investment in quality and safety across the enterprise. So, that is the the current number one value for most organizations. And then, of course, the benchmarking is helpful as well. So, what we do is we take key statistics about the organization, such as total revenue, total beds, adjusted discharges, total FTEs, and more, and we compare that to things like span of control for quality. Where does quality report up to and how many people are reporting to this individual within the system? We look at things like cost allocations of quality and safety across many categories, including things like registries, infection control, health data analytics, clinical risk management, population health, and much more, so that healthcare executives really know where they are spending their resources, where they maybe need to add, and maybe where they want to pull back. And finally... The benchmarking resource really helps executives understand staffing ratios, not only for their quality and safety departments, but for people working in quality and safety across other departments, across clinical service lines like radiology, across disciplines like nursing, and even across sites of care, including uh, non-acute delivery settings. The tool is incredibly robust and was really built by the market for the market because there was no other resource that really covered the bases the way that this one does.
0: The workforce study that we talked about at the beginning found that only about a quarter of respondents indicated that they had responsibility for population health and care transitions. HFMA recognizes that many hospitals and health systems and many of their CFOs have been slow to embrace population health management, but some have been very active. And Rick, I'm sure you know a few examples that you can share. There was one that came up at HFMA's annual conference in June. Uh, MultiCare CFO James Lee discussed the organization's investment in a population health management company and their 30-plus value-based payment agreements. But what opportunities exist for finance and quality professionals to collaborate on introducing or expanding population health initiatives in their own organizations?
3: I think HFMA and NACU are both finding that population health is is not always rising to the top of the priority list. I think a lot of health systems coming out of the the pandemic, the workforce shortages, all the other things that health systems are, are dealing with. On the finance side, health systems have been slow to adopt this new payment model, I think because getting on board the, the payer community, the employer community, changing the health systems to be able to manage payment models that support population health have been slower in developing. But I, I'm talking to more and more CFOs and health systems that are definitely focused for the future on population health and value-based care. I read in AQ's recent workforce report that they found population health is an opportunity area that quality professionals are being underutilized in this area. And some of the population health competencies mentioned in the NACU uh, report for quality are directly similar to our recommendations for finance professionals.
2: Unfortunately, like you mentioned in our workforce report, both population health and quality review and accountability are big opportunity areas. And in fact, quality review and accountability is actually the domain that ranks the lowest in our competency framework in terms of people saying uh, that they're operating at low, medium, or high ends of the spectrum, they're operating at very foundational levels. And so this reminds me just a little bit of a story I wanted to share, which is about five years ago, I was at a conference for accountable care and I'm hearing from a lot of healthcare executives about all the great work that they were doing and really sort of innovating around the models and the contracts. So when it was my turn to speak, I congratulated them, of course, on their progress. And I asked them, though, if they had people to do that work. Did they have people who understood it? Did they have people who could make good on all of those promises and ambitions that were in the contract? And they sort of looked at me a little confused, like, oh, well, that's not what we do. You know, we're just we're just focused on the contract. And it was a real opportunity to connect the dots to say, you know, striking the deal is one thing and implementing it and achieving your goals is quite another. And I think that that is something that is a real opportunity for everyone in healthcare to rally around, but certainly quality and finance, like get those people at the table early and get them involved in setting up the rules and parameters of the contract so that you can achieve the highest level of success.
0: I want to throw a wrench into this for a minute because you're talking about people and culture, but there are some pretty big workforce issues in healthcare right now, particularly in nursing. And there is a consensus about the link between nurse staffing and patient safety and quality, but there are different ideas about how that works in practice. Sometimes those ideas conflict. So what roles do finance and quality professionals have in developing nurse staffing solutions for their organization?
2: If you simply look at the data around birthing, and how many babies are born which would aim to you know eventually replace the the people who are working today it's simply not enough and so we are in a situation where from now till as far as my eyes can see the name of the game is going to be doing more with less and I think that whether you are a large healthcare system in a major metro area where you have some people who are transient and maybe you know moving to get you know a 10, 15, 20% compensation adjustment. Or if you're a small community health system with a limited workforce and a smaller community, the focus really has to be on getting people ready to do their best work. So to that, I think it's here to stay. So in that regard then, I think the role of quality and safety leaders and with the, the active support of finance is to help the workforce do their best work. Very often, they are seeing the same mistakes play out in healthcare over and over and over again. And it's incredibly frustrating and I would say even bewildering to those people who see the same sort of proverbial pen rolling off the desk all day, every day. We need to be looking at care redesign, system redesign, and really optimizing everything around that so that we are able to position people to do their best work.
3: You know, all these things cost money to implement. And I think nursing, finance, and quality need to really collaborate on the health system, making sure that the right nursing workforce is being invested in. Right time, right place, right reasons for doing the care And since nurse staffing is so important to quality of care, and I think everybody agrees there's a broad consensus on that, but there's a lot of disagreement about solutions, even within the the nursing community. And I think quality professionals can serve as that objective source of information and expertise. I think a resource that's really respected by all
2: involved.
0: Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Research and writing this week are by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial staff. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan. No. Gah! This is why Nick is the professional.